1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to It's Anita Rani. Today, I'm talking to a remarkable, awesome dude called Dwayne Fields. He's a scout ambassador, but also he's a lad from Hackney who had a really troubled upbringing. In fact, he was born in Jamaica and was brought to the UK at a very young age and had to fit in as a young black man and found himself on the wrong side of the tracks, to say the least. He's been stabbed. He's been shot at. In fact, wait till you hear the story. I didn't know what was coming and my jaw literally hit my kitchen floor. And somehow he had the capacity within himself to get himself out of that environment and then went on to become the first black British man to walk to the North Pole. You really need to hear this. Talk about being inspired. He actually came to my house to do the interview. So he comes to my kitchen, he's at my kitchen table, having a cup of tea and a biscuit. So um, you're invited too. so the tea has been made dwayne's having black tea he normally doesn't have any sugar but he's had three which i find amazing i've just exposed you um and uh, he asked for a piece of paper because i've got these um flowers that over christmas we made out of tissue and he's created this wonderful paper origami flower Man of many talents.
2: Um, Yeah, and I like to show off any 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 time I get the chance. And as for the three sugars, it's quite a big mug, so that that (laughs) that's why I needed three in there just to make sure. It's an ordinary mug. Um,
1: right, you. I'm really excited about talking to you. The first time we met was before Christmas because both of us are Scout ambassadors.
2: Yeah, so we're both both Scout ambassadors. We met at that that lunch, wasn't it, in honor of um, what was it, in honor of us becoming ambassadors? It was a general meeting. And do you know what? I, I felt like a little groupie or something on that day. I'll tell you why. I've been a fan of Tim Peake's since forever. And to meet him, Bear Grylls, Steve, hell, all these people on the same day, massive. I'm a fan of yours as well, of course.
1: <laughs> I wasn't expecting you to say that. I was just thinking exactly the same. I was thinking, um, Tim Peake, I mean, we were in, we were with hanging out with an astronaut, which is just... I mean, I came home and my husband saw the picture and he was like, "What? Oh my god, he was the same, just Tim Peake, Bear Grylls." And I was hanging out with you. I mean, like I'm the I'm kind of I kind of pot around the country doing Countryfile, and all of you guys are the real deal. Like, let's I'm I'm we sat together uh, and had this amazing lunch, which involved like maggots and stuff, which was I didn't touch, but you ate.
2: It wasn't maggots. It was um, it was a grasshopper, and it was some mealworms. It was fine. They're edible. They're very nutritious. They're good for you to a degree. Very low in fat. Uh, very, very nutritious. Loads of protein. You should have had some.
1: I should have actually because I don't eat much meat and, actually, and that's probably what we should be moving towards now, shouldn't we? Um, I feel like, are you are you comfortable there? Should I kind of, I'm going to lean over like this on my squeaky table. I might actually come and sit closer to you. Um, right. So yeah, we got chatting and I am going to move over actually. Let me just come around. I think that's going to be easier. Here we go. First time we're doing a podcast in my house, exposing to the world that I have a squeaky kitchen table.
2: It's a squeaky table. It's a really, really nice table. I love it. Um, But yeah, the thing is, surprisingly, I ate those insects and I'm a vegan.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe vegans don't count. Uh, Maybe insects don't count. Um, It's all right. I won't tell anyone. I'm an
2: at-home vegan.
1: He's an an at-home vegan who doesn't have sugar in his tea. Right, we got that straight. But you eat maggots and have sugar in your tea um today. Uh you're amazing. You're amazing for so many reasons. And I'm gonna I just want you to tell your story because we started talking about you um having lunch and I just thought, right, we've got to record this as a podcast. Because you when people talk about role models, when people talk about inspiring people, um finding um people, young people today who other young people can look at and go, yes. Yes, you are somebody I aspire to be like. You are that man. You are that man. And I want you to tell me why you're that man. I want you to tell me, first of all, well, I've already introduced the fact that you're the first Black Briton to have walked to the North Pole, which is an amazing achievement. But I want you to tell me. We'll start from the beginning. I want to know about you, where you were born, what brought you to Britain. Let's start from the beginning. I'll throw some questions in, and I'll stop talking now because this is about you, and I'm eating up the time.
2: No, it's it's cool. Um, first of all, it's always good when people look at you and say you are a role model, and I think. I if, if nothing else, forget the walk into the North Pole, forget the deserts, forget all the other stuff that I've done, the mountains. If someone can look at me and say, you are a role model, I get a real sense of pride from that. Now, I was, I am now considered an adventurer. I believe I was an adventurer from the moment I was born. And I'll tell you why. So we all know where Jamaica is, the quaint little island where the fastest man in the world comes from. I come from a very rural part of the island and... I knew about the forests and the woods and the trees and the streams before I knew houses could have three floors. And that's where my drive and that's where I get this inkling and this itch that makes me want to go out into the wilderness. That's where it comes from. So imagine me three years old, four years old. I live in the woods, basically. I live in a place that they call the back of the bush. That's what they know it as locally. So you can imagine it's real rural Jamaica.
1: Which part of the island? North, south, east?
2: So it's actually central. There's a river that's called the Rio Cobra, which is the Cobra River. Uh, You cross that river and you reach a place called Linstead. And if you come out of Linstead and go another three or four kilometers north-ish, you'll get to uh, where I'm from. So that's where it is. So um, going back to what I was saying, in Jamaica there I am, three, four, five-year-old little boy, and I can't get enough of the outdoors. I'm climbing trees. I'm putting my hand in termite holes to find out what's inside. I'm, you know, going home. Every time I went out and came home, I came back with a new pet. And I love the fact that I had the freedom. Fast forward a couple of years, I'm sent here to London to live with my mom, and all of that is out the window. So there I am, six-year-old Dwayne, Life has changed. I don't have the freedom. I don't have the outdoor spaces. I don't have the, the, the means to go out anymore because obviously in London, you can't just go out as a six-year-old on your own.
1: Which bit of London did you arrive in?
2: So I arrived in Archway and then eventually we moved to Palmer's Green for a couple of years. And it was actual, actually a blessing that I got to move to Palmer's Green because at that point we now had a back garden. And that for me was everything. I was in the garden more than I was inside the house.
1: Of course you were, because that's what you're craving. But what a horrible shock to your system. So you, you weren't living with your mum when you were in Jamaica?
2: No, I wasn't. And just to touch on the point that you made, the shock to the system, let me tell you a story. So a lot of people say, oh, Dwayne, you must love the snow and you must love the cold. Actually, the first time I saw the snow. Now, nobody ever says to you before you leave one country and go to the next, these are a list of things that you should expect. Now, as a six-year-old, I'm coming to this foreign country and I only hear good things about England. So there I am one night, I wake up in the morning, three, four o'clock in the morning, and I look outside. The floor's white, the sky's white, and there's bits coming out of the sky. I didn't know it could snow. I didn't know ice formed and fell out of the sky. So my six-year-old mind is telling me this is the sky falling. And I went back to bed and I was crying. I was fully teared up, crying. And I went back to bed terrified. So that was my very first experience of snow. And that was a massive shock to my system.
1: Oh, yeah, but oh, what? And made you cry. You didn't know what it was. Didn't have a clue. Which is, which is hilarious because now you, snow has got is basically your best mate. Well, it should be because, uh, well, you spend a lot of time in the snow, or you have done.
2: Yeah, I mean, I love the snow. I hate the cold. <laughs> I say that much. But um, it was, it, I, I literally, I cried to sleep, and it was only when my sister woke up the following morning and said, oh, it's snowing, that I thought, oh, actually, this is something that happens. Could someone not have told me this like 24 hours ago?
1: Did you build a snowman?
2: We did build a snowman. And would you believe it, I built a snowman wearing a T-shirt, Because at that age, you don't feel the cold, do you? You don't really, you don't notice it.
1: It's so funny you should say that because I was in the park down the road on Sunday playing with my godchildren and there was just children rolling around. It was freezing cold. And I was looking at them going, they are so, they don't feel the cold at all. Where does that go? Because I feel the cold so much, so badly. Um, So you came as a six-year-old. Your life changed overnight. You know, this idyllic, adventurous um, lifestyle in Jamaica. Welcome to inner city London. And, And then you tell me what what how how did life turn out? What how was how was little Dwayne at school? Did you did you take to it?
2: So, little Dwayne at school was an interesting character. Um, <laughs> I
1: love how we're talking about you in the third person though. <laughs> how was it? What was your experience like?
2: I think it's better for my psyche if I talk about him in a third person. Um, little Dwayne at school was he was the kind of kid that loved learning, but I had a very bad experience when I first went to school. So, when I first came here, obviously I didn't get the outdoor space that I needed. Um, I started watching TV to get the experience, to, to to get that feel that I needed. And I remember watching David Ambrose one day. He said, we're going to talk about life in the undergrowth. We're going to talk about insects and all the rest of it. And I love his voice. I can't do it, but I love his voice. And I remember he was speaking specifically about uh, wood lice. Now, I went to school and I went into the gardens at school and I dug up some wood lice and I found a female woodlice, lice, wood louse, And she was carrying some babies on her stomach, as they do. I found that really interesting. And I took that to everyone else in my class, all my friends in the class. Well, everyone else in the class at this stage, I hadn't made friends yet because I was that boy that spoke differently and all the rest of it. And I took it over to them and I said, look what I found. And I showed them my hands and they all said, and ran away and left me standing there by myself. And that made me sad.
1: I'm not surprised, but for you, it was the most natural thing because you're kind of used to putting your hands in termite (laughs) holes and Nests, wasps, nests and whatnot. Um, but did you, did, you, did you manage to fit in? Did you get friends? Did you, did you enjoy school? Did it become a good experience?
2: I loved school. Uh, my first experience of, of, of friendship in school came from a boy actually called Stavros Dimitri. And, uh, and I love this guy. He's a good friend of mine even till today. So when you come to a new school, you get paired up with someone who's already existing in that school. And I remember my teacher said, right, you're with, you're with Stavros. He'll show you what we do and how things work the next sentence was we're going to draw our favorite tv characters today and i was so scared because i didn't have a tv back in jamaica and i didn't know what tv characters were so i was like oh god what do i do and i copied stavros and i can laugh about it now but this was the beginning of my my life of lying So my teacher looked at the drawing and said, oh, that's a really good drawing. It was rubbish. But she said it was really good anyway. I think that's their job. They have to tell you.
1: What was the character? What was the character?
2: The character was meant to be Popeye the Sailor, but it was a rubbish depiction of of Popeye.
1: Because yours was a copy of a a six-year-old child's (laughs) depiction.
2: So mine was a copy of Stavros's, and he is not a very good drawer. I can tell you that now. So I copied someone who's a rubbish drawer, and mine was a rubbish copy. So it was Popeye, and... My teacher asks, oh, so is he your favourite? And I looked at her and I said, yes, he is my favourite miss. I didn't even know who Popeye was at this point. And yeah, that was it. But in general, school for me was really good. I loved it.
1: Popeye's a great person for Stavros to have picked. Great, great role model, great character, Eat all that spinach. Um, even if he did smoke a pipe, but yeah, and he's just a tattooed sailor. We love Popeye. I need to stop talking about Popeye. He just pops into med. Um, But what I know about you... Um, and what is written about you, and people have, anyone who's read an interview with you would know, is that actually you had a really tough time. And at, you grew up in Hackney as well. So at some point you moved, which is where we are right now. So when did you move from Palmer's Green? When did you come to Hackney? And when did things start going
2: wrong? So uh, we moved from Palmer's Green to Hackney, I think it was 1992 or 93. It was 90, 1992, 93, we moved from Palmer's Green to Hackney. And I think things start to go wrong literally from the day I told my teacher I liked Popeye. Because for me, it was it was more than just a drawing. It was me making that solid attempt to fit in, not stand out, not put my head above that parapet in any way. So, I didn't want anyone to know that I didn't have I didn't watch TV or didn't know what a TV character was. I didn't speak to very many people because I spoke differently. Um, when I came to Hackney, I decided that I would set those things aside. The things that I enjoyed doing, I didn't have an open, uh, any space, open spaces to go and explore and spend my time in. So I fell into the habits that many other young people in Hackney fall into, which is sit around in an estate, might go and play some football. But fundamentally, we we did a lot of sitting around. And that's when I guess things really started to go downhill for me.
1: Were you quite close to where we are now? Which bit were you in?
2: So right now, we're not far from Hackney Central. I was about 10 minutes up the road in Stoke Newton. Oh right,
1: OK, yeah. so super close. Super, so what, start when you say started to go wrong, in what, what sense, what started happening?
2: Well, when I say start to go wrong, I mean, I would do things, anything and pretty much everything to fit in. So we'd, you know, we're sitting around and someone say, oh, should we go to West End or should we go here and should we go into? And I'd say, oh, yeah, let's go and do it. And I would pretend to want to do it as well. just so I am part of the team. I'm part of the group. I'm socially accepted. And I think it went more wrong for me internally than it did, uh, in in terms of my behaviour or anything like that, I felt like I was losing myself more and more every single day that I was out there.
1: I think a lot of kids can, young people can associate with that. Like, who doesn't want to fit in? And so much of your upbringing and your childhood is to do with your peer group, isn't it? So what were the, what kind of stuff did you get up to? Was it it gang culture, Duane? Is that what you kind of got into?
2: I think anything that you do as part of your in-group can be classed as gang culture. For example, I would, I was very lucky. I could wander onto one estate and then move on to the next. But I had friends, close friends that couldn't do that because of the gang culture. If I was with that individual, I i would be better off avoiding a particular place. And for me, it was fine on my own, but I just couldn't do it with them. So gang culture, yes, we went places as a group. And I feel like at times we, we did look intimidating. Um, I know people who carried knives, I know people who sold drugs. I know people who carried out illegal activities. And at the time, I didn't say anything and I didn't show my disapproval because I wanted to be accepted in the wider group.
1: And then it was terrible because you got involved in, well, knife crime, right? What happened?
2: Oh, so what happened? Uh, One night, a friend of mine said, look, I'm shooting a media project. Would you come along to a place in Tottenham, actually?
1: How old were you at this point?
2: I was 19 at the time. They said, we're doing this media project. Uh, would you come along to Tottenham?
1: So would you say, sorry to interrupt, um, like at this point, you're 19 years old. You've been here since you were six. Um, like you were fully, you're a hackney boy. The sort of, the your crew that you hang out with on the estate, call it a gang if you want to. Did you haven't, did the gang have a name?
2: No, um, it wasn't a named gang. Because nowadays you don't have a name as a gang. You have an estate. This is your postcode. This is your area. So I grew up. Spent most of my time in Hawksley Estate. There were people from Lordship Estate, yeah. uh, Smalley Estate, Shakespeare Estate, uh, Lillian. Pembury. Pembury, That's another. That's quite a, a, a famous one or infamous one. Mm. Um, you were known by the estate you were from.
1: Right. So. So at this point, you're kind of. This is this is your life, right? You're kind of. You're hanging with your crew. You weren't at school anymore. You. How old were you when you finished school?
2: So I, w- I stopped going to school in Palmer's, in Arnus Grove when I was 16 and I went to college. Uh, and the problem was I went to college to do what other people wanted me to do. For example, my mum wanted me to do electromechanical engineering. I loved it as a pastime and as a hobby, but I didn't love it as a, as a career.
1: Yeah, because you're that nature kid. You're the kid who brings the woodlouse to school and scares all the other children, because for you, it's normal. Let me tell you,
2: actually, let me tell you what I did one time. Um, So I remember in 1992, was it, when Jurassic Park came out?
1: I would, I would, I love that you think I know the answer to that on my (laughs) fingertips. Yes, around that time, I'm sure. Just
2: just nod and agree. So 1992, let's say that's the year.
1: I know that there's a new Jumanji.
2: Yeah, there is a new Jumanji, and I hear it's very good. So I watched Jurassic Park. Now, when you watch Jurassic Park, the first thing you want to do is go out and either be a dinosaur, find a dinosaur, or learn about dinosaurs. Look,
1: when me and my husband were having this conversation yesterday. Who doesn't love dinosaurs? I
2: think only weirdos don't love dinosaurs. I agree, I agree. Yeah, Dinosaurs are awesome. Exactly. And they still exist. They're birds now. Yeah. That's a fact. Um, so I watched uh, Jurassic Park. And I went home and I, I was just, I was lost in the film. I was like, Jurassic Park, I really want to see dinosaurs. I wonder if they can really make dinosaurs from ostrich eggs and whatever else. And I thought, I'm going to create Jurassic Park. I'm going to build a Jurassic Park. <laughs> so I went, I got a shoebox. I got a wire. So I'm very good with my hands. I got a, a, a TV cord and I tore the wires out and I made um, like a rim around the shoebox where, and I connected it to a nine volt battery. Don't do this at home because it's a waste of time and they will get out. So anyway, I got a load of slugs and snails and put some grass and leaves and stuff inside the box. And every time they climbed up to try and escape, they'd get a tiny electric shock and fall back down. Um, I think they tested the wires so much that they burnt out the battery. And one morning I woke up and they were all over the house and they travel surprisingly fast.
1: Amazing. That's amazing. Ingenious. So you're very creative. Uh so what happened? You were 19. We're gonna get back yeah, to 19. Let's go back because this is kind of this is this this is the crux of it. This is the serious stuff. This is why what you're this is what makes you even more remarkable. Um so at 19 you went to Tottenham. What happened?
2: So we showed up to an estate in Tottenham. We're using their community hall as a as a as the stage for the the, the, the scene that we were shooting. Uh some of the boys from the local area they came inside assuming it was a a proper film being made and they were determined to stay. My friend said, look, it's just the inside of a club. The scene we're shooting, it's just an inside of a club and that's it. They were determined to cause some trouble with some other people out there. We left. And as I walked out, they followed me and two of my other friends. They chased us to the end of the road. And by now there was a few more of them. So I think in total it was 12 or 13 boys. And it was me and four of my friends. And I ended up getting stabbed and carted off in, a hosp- in an ambulance to hospital.
1: Oh, my God. Terrifying.
2: Um, yeah, it was. The scariest part is I don't remember. I remember being, you know, in, in his car. And then I remember them pulling over at a bus stop because I, I, and I also heard my friend shouting, he's passing out, he's passing out.
1: Where were you stabbed?
2: So I was stabbed in my lower stomach and I was also stabbed just here. Uh, I'm pointing at my shoulder, just between my shoulder and my chest.
1: And and like serious stab wounds.
2: Yes. So this one was stitched up and that lower one was taped up. Um, Luckily, there wasn't too much internal damage. This one was actually quite bad because I lost a lot of blood. And that's what caused me to start losing consciousness. So
1: this could have been fatal.
2: Um, Easily. I mean, an inch to the left and it would have been into my chest cavity Uh, and I think they said four millimetres further and it would have severed an archery that goes to my arm.
1: Thank goodness you're here. Thank goodness. Um, Someone, something looking after you. Um, But that's not the first... Is it true that you were also involved in another stabbing and gun crime as well?
2: So um, that was the stabbing. Uh, The next incident took place about two years after this, actually. Um, I'm very good with my hands. I'll just point that out again. And I built a moped... So I built this moped from scratch, found some parts, took some other parts from a scrapyard, bought some parts, built the moped, test drove it, crashed it, built it again and made my brother test drive it this time. And um, yeah, so the maiden voyage, it was fine. It worked. He rode it down to the bottom of the road and some boys pushed him off of it and took the bike. He then came home crying in tears and I said, look, let's go. We're marching back down there and we're getting that bike back. So me and my brother marched down to the to the bottom of the road to the estate and demand the bike back. And I was determined that I literally put blood, sweat and tears into that bike. They are not keeping not a single nut or bolt from it. I got everything except for one plastic piece, which is about it's about a foot long, two to three inches wide. And one boy was holding it. I grabbed it out of his hand and I walked away. And as I went to walk away, he pushed me. I turned around. He grabbed me. I grabbed him. We tussled for a moment and I pushed him away. And two minutes later, while I'm still picking up the bits and pieces, he comes back. But this time he comes back and he's got a loaded gun in his hand. And I stood up, I pushed my brother to the side and I stepped away and I looked at him and I said, look, he was about four or five meters away. I said, look, you don't have to do that. And no sooner had I said it, he pulled the trigger and then he caught the the weapon back to to load another round into the chamber. Did he shoot you? He fired the gun. He pulled the trigger. It misfired twice, and before he could do it a third time, um, some of the other boys out there kind of carted him off, dra- dragged him away, saying, "Look, what are you doing?"
1: Bloody hell, Dwayne! That is serious. That is uh, what? How terrified were you?
2: Um, the honest truth is, when when you're looking, literally looking down the barrel of a gun, every sound—I mean, it could have been a songbird that flew past. It would have probably sounded like like the 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 gun firing to me and when it clicked the first time I thought that's it I must have been shot and it was it was a scary time because and in actual fact I stopped maybe three or four times in the 10 minute walk home just to check and reconfirm that I hadn't been shot or I'm not injured somewhere and it was it was it was really it was a tough thing to deal with because not just did the situation really land quite heavily on me but the aftermath as well. I had a lot of people saying to me, I had texts from people by the time I got home saying, we heard what happened. What are we going to do? Because everyone and wanted
1: retaliation. Yeah.
2: It's, it's the most natural course of action when you're in that situation to retaliate and everyone expected it and wanted it and even encouraged it.
1: Because, because of the culture that you're in, because you were hanging with, you've got your crew and this was somebody.
2: That, that's exactly right. Because you are, you've been attacked And it's your duty to now retaliate. You have to, otherwise, one, you'll lose respect, you'll lose faith, uh, face, sorry, you'll lose friends over things like that. And I had a lot of people saying, what are you going to do? Are you going to get him? I know where to get this. I know where to get that. And I just thought, well, actually, I'm just glad to be here. I'm happy that it hasn't gone any further. I'm happy that I'm not dead. I'm happy that I'm not injured.
1: Was that the moment where things changed
2: for you? Actually, the moment where things changed came about a week or two later. So, um... Now, you imagine I'm under a lot of pressure from people to try and do something. And I thought the best way to escape this pressure is switch off the phone and just turn into a recluse for a couple of weeks. Uh, Two weeks later, I decide I'm going to do something to announce that Dwayne is here. I'm not like everyone else. I'm not the person that's going to try and get someone back. I am not the person that you've come to see me as. I'm not going to lie about who I am anymore. I'm now going to show the world who the real Dwayne Fields is. And I didn't know how I was going to do it
1: what did you do I mean I'm just your story if anyone could see my face right now I mean this is unbelievable this story um especially because it happened in London it's not a movie you know it's like it's just this happened you weren't you're only like a mile away from where we're sitting right now where this happened um so that you turned your phone off for two weeks so you must have had a moment like you must have gone through kind of some zen phase like if it was a movie that's the moment where you have your kind of change you must have and that, the the strength of character and the bravery it must have taken for you to then turn around to all those friends and say whatever it was that you said what did you say
2: the truth is i i i think i was more frightened than anything i think i felt like i would be pressured or i would allow myself to be pressured into doing something and i didn't want there to even be a chance of that happening and that's why i stayed away from everyone and what I did after after this incident, I decided, right, I need to do something. A friend of mine said, Dwayne, we're going to do a three peaks challenge. This is a guy that I knew from up north somewhere. And I said,
1: hooray, the north. Yeah,
2: hey. <laughs> Yes, I, I don't think he's your up north, oh, but he's somewhere okay. in the middle country. Oh,
1: fair enough.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but um, he said, yeah, we're going to be doing this three peaks challenge for a local charity. And I thought, well, great, I'm going to take part. And when I did that. I was in agony the whole way up the first mountain and down the whole way up the second mountain and down. And the same thing again on the third mountain, which was uh, Snowdonia. The moment I got back and they said, we did it because both him and myself, we left everyone else just so we could complete it within 24 hours. And the moment I got back and they said, right, your time is 23 hours, 34 minutes. I thought, this feels great. I've done exactly what I wanted to do. I felt comfortable I'm now in agony, but I felt comfortable. And yes, I'm going to do more of this. And that's, I think, is the moment of Zen. That's the moment where I said, I need to definitely do me now.
1: And was it easy for you to, to become you and to move away from the, the the life that you had in Hackney?
2: It was very difficult. When I first decided to do the North Pole, and I, I, we're going to get into that in a minute, yeah. but when I first decided to do it, I was I was very apprehensive about telling people I knew, friends and family, just because I knew they'd ridicule the idea and there's a chance they'd ridicule it enough to make me change my mind. So I told a local newspaper before I told anyone. Smart. I figured once it was out there, it's too late to bring it back or reel it back in. So I would put it out there and I'll wait and see what happens.
1: That's that's interesting because first of all, you had the foresight to think that they'll ridicule it, but you also had enough self-awareness to think they might have the power to make me change my mind. That's incredible that that they could have done that.
2: I think in life we have to understand that we we do become influenced by what's around us and we can also influence what's around us. And I think sometimes if you don't feel confident in yourself, you'll feel like there's more power to influence you than you have to influence situations.
1: So you decided to take on this amazing challenge to to walk to the north pole. How was that experience, Dwayne?
2: Um, in one word, cold. Uh, it
1: wait, wait, how did that come about, by the way? Who was it? Was it the same guy?
2: No, oh, so the way that came about is this. I was waiting to do something. I was looking for something to do. And I remember hearing one morning, I was busy in the kitchen. I heard Ben Fogle and James Cracknell saying, we've rolled across the Atlantic. We're now pursuing a trek to the South Pole and we're looking for a third member to join the team. I thought, that's amazing. They're saying, Dwayne, come and join us. It sounds like they were, you know, calling out my name. And in the end, I waited three weeks to get back to them. When I finally did get the, the, find the courage to, to, to respond, because I didn't want to get knocked back, they said, oh, unfortunately, uh, it's too late. Selections have started. Would you consider going to the North Pole instead? And I thought, well, actually, at this stage, a pole's a pole. I'm a Hackney guy, born in Jamaica. Cold is cold, snow is snow. And that's how the, the idea for that came about. Now, prior to that, the reason I was looking for something more to do was because a really good friend of mine, his name's Etem. He was shot and killed about 20, 25 meters from where the guy
0: Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
2: Pulled a gun on me. And what year was that? When was that? Uh, that was November 2007 that that happened. And I felt like had I done more when the guy pulled a gun on me, maybe to change I don't know, people's outlooks, people standing on certain issues, maybe people's behaviours. Maybe there's a chance that he would he would still be here. And I know there are people out there that will say, well, you know, that's not your it's not your responsibility. But the truth is, I feel like I could have played a part. And yeah, so that's 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 how it came about. That's how the the North Pole came about.
1: How was the training? And by the way, do you think that it's everyone's responsibility? Everyone has a little bit of responsibility, don't they? in society and we're going to talk about that but just, just because you said people said it's not your responsibility do you think that everyone has a responsibility
2: i think absolutely every single individual that's part of a society is responsible for that society you play your part but you also need to understand that you can influence things as well um now on to your second point which there's, was the training
1: there's so much i want to talk to you oh, about no. but i really want to know about The Hackney labs training to walk to the North Pole. Where do you even start?
2: Okay, so when you first decide you're going to do something like a trip to the North Pole, the first thing you do is your extensive research, which is, in my case, five minutes on Google. So I went through and I thought, okay, going to the North Pole, let me find out what I'm going to face and what other people have done to to prepare for it.
1: Listen, it's where we all start our research. You find the Wikipedia blog about it and you read up and and there'll be something about training, about walking to the North Pole.
2: Yeah, exactly. And I, I did that. And I found this, this page which said, first of all, it said, um, right, so I'm going to pull uh, tyres to recreate pulling a polk, a sled. I thought, great, I'm going to pull tyres. So I got two tyres, threw them in the back of my car, drove to Hackney Marshes. I think this was in the daytime. And I looked around. There was a lot of people. So I thought, oh, God, I'm going to look a bit stupid. So i wait till nighttime. So I waited around for an hour or two. <laughs> and... I, start, I tied the tires together and I started walking. I was like, okay, now I'm pulling tires. I feel like I'm preparing for the North Pole. And I go around the corner right near the canal and I hear some voices. There's like five or six boys, uh, a mixed group. Um, and I remember them hearing someone saying, What's that? And one of them said, I don't know, what's he doing? And I was like, oh, God, they're going to they're gonna start saying stuff. And at this point, it was too late to turn around because they'd already seen me. And I remember they laughed at me and they made jokes. And I can hear them as I'm walking off into the darkness. I can hear them sitting on the bench. And I felt so small and I felt so weak. And after that, I didn't go back to Hackney Marshes. I waited till the dead of night to go to Clissold Park. <laughs> <laughs> I walked, I went, I threw the tires over the fence in Clissold Park and I literally, I marked out, I marked out a track about 120, 130 meters and I'll just do lengths.
1: And that was a nicer park.
2: That was, that was much nicer and fewer people are uh, staring at me and, and making jokes and ridiculing me.
1: I love that. I'm going to go sit on the dead of night to drag my t- tires around because that makes perfect sense. During the day, you just look like someone with a personal trainer or something or just doing your thing. Um, how was the experience when you eventually got there? How many of you were there in the ex- on the expedition?
2: So the expedition itself was to commemorate the first people that went there, and that was in nineteen oh nine. It was uh, the Matthew Henson and the Robert Perry uh, expedition.
1: He was a, uh, an Amer- He was a black American, wasn't he? Which one?
2: Was it? Yes. So Matthew Henson was a black American, um, and he was the person that they that that arrived there first. So he's the first person to set foot at the at the. Magnate North Pole.
1: You should go on Radio Four on that program, Great Lives, and talk about him because I'd never heard about this guy.
2: He, he is an amazing inspiration, and the truth is, when you choose to do something, you find someone else in that field, don't yeah, you? Yeah. And then you kind of draw parallels between yourself and them.
1: Why do we not know about these role models? Why do we not know about Matthew Henson? Like, why is it? Ah, yeah, it's important to know. It's important to have, like we say, role models and people who look like us doing this awesome stuff.
2: Absolutely. I think the more people that you see that you can identify with or the better you can identify with the person doing it, okay. it's the more likelihood you're going to go along and do it and carry out that part. You,
1: you believe that you can do it. If someone else like looks, who looks like you is doing something, you, it's just something very basic. It makes, gives you the power to think I can do that too. Um, how difficult was it?
2: How difficult is it? Now, I'm supposed to say I found it impossibly hard. The truth is I felt very, very much at home when I was in the Arctic. There were times when it was extremely cold. I was hungry. I was fatigued. My teammates and myself were fed up of each other. Um, but the truth is I didn't get a single blister. I had some frost nip on my nose and uh, one of my fingers, really, it gets cold and it stays cold all the time. But generally, I found it quite straightforward.
1: I know. What he wants to say is, it was easy. It was <laughs> beautiful.
2: It was the most beautiful place that I've ever visited. Um, there was, at times, there was nothing to see. And there's beauty in nothingness. Um is it
1: disorientating, though? Because doesn't the, the the land and the sky just merge into one? And you don't know whether you're up, up or down, what's going on?
2: Absolutely. So there's a point where, there was a point where it was a whiteout. Yeah. And I say a point, pretty much the whole time that I was there. It was a whiteout. The sky, the ground, it all looks the same. And that's when you keep your head on the, on the compass and just to make sure you're, you're going in the right direction. But it was, we had a lot of help. There's something called the wind. It blows generally from the north. And while I was there, it was constant and consistently bad. So, I knew as long as the wind was hurt in my face and going straight into my eyes i i was I was heading in the right direction. Wow, so
1: even that hideous wind had its purpose. It had its purpose. How many days did you walk?
2: So my teammates and I we walked for twenty two days. We were out there for twenty two days
1: and did you have like moments of meditation? Did you have an epiphany? did you just you know was there anything at the end of it that you thought that's changed me apart from the fact that you just walked the north pole
2: there's a couple of moments I mean. One of them, I tell a lot of people about this and my teammates, I love them to bits and I loved them before, but there was a point during the race and I think it was near the beginning, maybe the first week or so. Did you hate their guts? I hated them. <laughs> they, they did this thing for the first few days, which I don't think they did it on purpose. Uh, they would walk ahead, stop, and as soon as I caught up, they'd have a conversation, have a giggle. And as soon as I caught up, they'd walk off again. And bitchy. It was horrible, but they didn't. That's I That's
1: what girls do at school sometimes. It's horrible. Like break, cuts <laughs> you. You basically turn it into hurts. a kid.
2: It hurts. It really did hurt. And I don't think they realized um they were doing it. But um I love them now. There was a moment where it was freezing cold. It was terrible for two days. It was just windy, the worst weather. And we were walking for about three and a half hours, four hours, and we'd covered about a mile. And it was really, really, it was It was just tough. We couldn't go anywhere because the wind was blowing so hard. Couldn't make it out of the snow. It was freezing cold. Hands weren't working. All the dexterity in my fingers went. Normally it takes us about seven or eight minutes to set up a tent. This time it took about 20, 25 minutes and the fire wouldn't start. And we were really, really finding it tough. And there was a moment where I looked around. And I thought this is, this is too much for us. And I could tell in, in their faces, they were really beaten up as well. And at one stage we 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 worked together to strike a match because I couldn't hold a match, but I could hold the box between my hands and my teammate could hold the match between his fingers. So we worked together, struck the struck the match, and when we lit that fire, oh goodness, the warmth. It 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 brought me back to life. It felt like it brought me back to life. And let me think. There was another moment. I mean, everyone always says, How did it feel to get to the end? The truth is it was a massive, massive anti-climax. Because to to, to make it that far to go through all of that I was motivating myself by saying there's going to be confetti and fireworks and there's going to be people saying well done I got to the end the bit of snow that marked the magnetic north pole was the exact same as the bit of snow 100 200 300 400 miles back that way so it was a massive anticlimax, but I was really proud of myself yeah
1: there's no lesson about life in that that it's not about the getting there it's the it's the- it's not about actually getting to the point, not finishing. It's the journey to Absolutely. get there. That's what it's all about. And actually, once you get there, then it, the only way is sort of down. You've done it.
2: Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's exactly right. So for me, I think the toughest part of the whole journey, actually, was the beginning. And for me, the beginning was when I made that decision that I was going to do this. It was tough for me to tell people because I knew people would ridicule me. And in actual fact, I was so ready for everyone's comments that the very first day that the Hackney Gazette printed the story... I had a phone call from a friend and he said, are you climbing? I heard you're climbing the North Pole. And I was so ready for him that I said, well, first of all, you don't climb the North Pole, it's a place in the ground. So I had my back up and I was ready for an argument. I was ready to, to really get at anyone that wanted to deter me from this. And that's, that's that for me was the toughest part, raising the money, having people believe in me that I could do it. It was so tough.
1: And now? Mm-hmm.
2: And now I'm going to do it all again.
1: I know you are. Um, before we talk about your new project, because we'll send... We'll, we'll end on that. Um, actually, you, you are, do something, you're very passionate about something that I'm very passionate about. And that is getting kids from inner cities out into the countryside. And I do, I'm lucky because I grew up in Yorkshire. And as an Asian woman, we had a quite an unusual father at the time. He was really adventurous and we would access the countryside like all the white families that surrounded us. And we would often, very often, be the only Asian family in the countryside. And I talk about this. Um so I I think I've really landed on my feet working Countryfile because it's, I love it. I absolutely love Massive it. Massive
2: shout out to your dad for that, by the way.
1: Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah, he's, he's a total dude. I will do a podcast with my dad so everyone can get to know my dad because he's worth getting to know. He's awesome. Um, but why do you think it's important, particularly for kids from inner city areas, to get out?
2: I think it's massively important for a number of reasons. One of which is we are so caught up or young people today are so caught up with the estate they grow up on or the postcode they live in or the school uniform they wear that make that, that it almost defines their identity and I think when you get young people out of their comfort zone into the wilderness it gives them that freedom to think oh I'm actually away from all of that and this is how I feel it feels good to be away from it and it's almost introducing them to a new life a new way of life and a new way of thinking and it frees up their mind gets them away from all the ambient noise all the things, all the distractions, all the tech that's keeping them preoccupied, it gets them back to a very safe place. And I'm speaking from experience because I was very lucky. I was lucky enough to come from the countryside, come into the inner city and then be able to go back and revisit that. So I, can, I know the difference and I know the difference it can make as well.
1: I completely, completely agree with you, Joanne. Like for me, there are moments that I remember from my childhood. I was lucky in that I went to a, quite a middle class school and I was exposed to going to the countryside and I like you took the kind of initiative to go yeah I fancy going and doing that expedition and climbing that mountain and it's they are the most pleasurable childhood memories I have of that freedom and that sense of achievement right it's hard as hell but When you do it, my God.
2: You feel so good. It's when you get to the top of that mountain, you realize, actually, I'm here now or to the end of that path or along that. It just feels like, yes, I set myself this goal. I've achieved it. I can put that feather in my hat. And that builds up your confidence and your self-worth. And I think a lot of young people today don't have that confidence and don't have that belief in themselves and don't have that self-worth. And that's why they're so willing and readily throw it away.
1: I totally, totally agree with you. And I guess that is why we're both scout ambassadors. Because yes. you've got to get them young.
2: You have to start young. You have to instill in them from the earliest stages that, look, there is so much more to life. Let's instill all the, the scout ethos, you know, look after each other, take care of each other, do the right thing, be a good person. These are the kind of things that we need to instill in young people. And I think, again... Part of the reason why society is breaking apart, in my opinion, is because we're not instilling many of these into the young people, these... What you call them? I guess you'd call them core, core values. Yeah. Oh, you said it, core values into these young people.
1: Completely. And like you said at the very beginning, that our sense of like we all have a responsibility in the society that we live in. But yeah, getting them outdoors. First of all, understanding little things about the countryside and just knowing where food comes from. But connecting with nature. I think you're right. It's about self-worth, self-esteem. And I think it just builds your confidence and it makes you feel that you can achieve. What if you can achieve climbing a mountain you can achieve so much more you can bring that back. yeah it's so good to talk well obviously that's why we're scout ambassadors because we're passionate about it
2: yeah I mean my passion comes from the fact that I have done I'm lucky and I keep saying it every time I speak I say I'm very lucky I've lived in 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 a place where I had access to the outdoors and I've lived in a place where I didn't and I know within myself I know the impact it had on me and I know that when I was introduced back to it it had a great positive impact
1: So what I'm really fascinated to know about you is why do you think that you somehow had the capacity to change your life? Somehow there are lots of kids like you grew up in estates, lots of bright young boys, and it is usually boys, um, And in fact, I'm reading an amazing book that you should read. It's called Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. And uh, I'm only halfway through, but I've just read this really heartbreaking and eye opening chapter just about how utterly disadvantaged you are if you're born as a black man in Britain. I mean, in the world generally, but how like just structural, structural racism and just everything stacked against you from the minute you're born. So what was it about you? What was that thing that made you? How did you figure that you wanted something more and then had the capacity to go and get it and do something about it when others don't?
2: I love that question. And I'll tell you why. It it allows me to actually touch on something which is a little bit deeper for me. Um, The reason I think I had the capacity was I just had enough. Inside, I was lying to myself. I missed where i I missed back home. I'd been lying for so long and things had gotten so bad and I valued my brother more than I valued myself. And I think because he was there on that fateful night, that's what was the big factor for me. That's what changed my mind. That's what I looked to when I said, actually, I want more for people. And when I said people, I was actually thinking about him. I want more for people, people in general as well. But at the time I was thinking about my brother and that was my, he was my strength. He was the one that I was thinking about when I was doing this and I didn't want anything to happen to him and I didn't want anyone else to have a brother that something happened to. So for me, it was the the situation was terrible and the fact that I was with my brother in that situation made it worse and I think that's where I drew strength from to say I'm going to make a change because I don't want this to happen to him or anyone else. And, and sorry, and also I just feel like the reason... For me, I'm a very stubborn person. So I think I know other people have attempted to make it to the North Pole. And there's no difference physically in in, between myself and them. But I just know that in my head, I just keep banging away at that. That hammer, just banging away, banging away. And I make sure that I take, you know, I just I just don't know when to stop sometimes.
1: We don't want you to stop. You should never know when to stop. We want you to keep going. Um, And you are keeping going because you've got this. You've taken on another Insane but brilliant projects, haven't you? Tell me what you're doing next, and it's happening soon, isn't it?
2: It's going to be amazing, and hopefully, it does happen soon. I'm still trying to get funding and the support and sponsorship for it. It's uh I'm going to be walking to the South Pole, and the truth is, I'm going to be walking to the South Pole and then onto the Ross um, Ice Shelf. So it's a crossing, a Trans uh, Antarctic crossing that I'm going to be attempting. I think only two or three people has ever done it in history, and I'm going to be part of that small team. And it's, it's, again, it's all about just showing people that you set yourself a goal, you work hard, you get stuck in and you can achieve it. Pure dogged determination will make it
1: happen. Are you training right now?
2: I'm always in training. because Are you,
1: are you back on Clissold Park with the types?
2: <laughs> no, um, um, I'm... <laughs> I'm um,
1: Have you advanced to Hyde Park or something?
2: Though? No, 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 no. I, I, I don't like, I still feel so self-conscious doing it in public. Um... I Now what I do is I use lots of bands. So I'm I'm in the gym a little bit. I use bands and I do lots of walking with weights and I do lots of running and, and I do lots of cardio as well.
1: And vegan for, I mean, obviously maybe for health reasons or for what, what reasons are you a vegan?
2: Absolutely. I'm an animal lover. And because I'm an animal, animal lover, I can't condone eating animals that I don't feel have been treated properly during their life. Now, uh, I, I joked earlier when I said I'm a stay-at-home vegan. When I'm at home, I'm... I eat pure raw plants and I live on a plant-based diet.
1: Don't be looking at my flowers like that.
2: <laughs> do you know
1: they, what are, I they, they are not I edible.
2: At, yeah. I looked at I I do you know I'd eat it. Yeah, I've got a stomach <laughs> like a goat man. I can eat anything and I'll be fine. But um I, I live on a plant-based diet. When I go out and do adventures and stuff like that, I do I do cheat sometimes and I do eat um some animal pro- uh, products. That's
1: okay. That's okay. You're allowed to. I mean, I don't we don't eat much meat in our house and I'm not fully vegan, but curry, vegetarian, Indian diet is pretty, pretty damn good for vegans. Curry, anything, all vegetables. Um, How much money do you need to raise to do it?
2: So I'm in the process of trying to raise £100,000 to make my um, Antarctic expedition, the one-off, I think, um, £100,000 to make it happen. That's what I need. If I get that today, I will be leaving this country Uh, Beginning of November this year and coming back uh, towards the end of January.
1: Well, look, we can use the power of this podcast. I don't know... My, I know my podcast listeners are awesome. Uh, I don't know how much money they've got, but I think every, every little bit counts, right? So how do people donate or get involved or, you know, support you? And, you know, if they want to fund you, how can they do any of that sort of stuff?
2: Um, so absolutely great. I would love for anyone that wants to support me, fund me, sponsor me, donate, um, go to my website. It's just duane My name is Dwayne Fields on every one of my social media. No dots. Numbers. It's just Dwayne Fields and you can contact me that way. I'm very, very accessible. I've tried to make sure that in doing what I do, anyone can message me at any time and expect to get a message back. So Dwayne Fields on all my social media.
1: Dwayne, you are a true hero. And you're only 34. 34. How inadequate does everyone feel? Um more power to you. Just keep going. Keep going. I'm so glad we've got to know each other. I'm so glad we're going to be spending some time together.
2: Yeah, I know. It's amazing. Um, on the the 34th the thing, yeah. we nearly shame this, share the same birthday. <laughs> Yours is the 25th. I know I've just told everyone. And mine's the 26th.
1: Of October yes. Scorpio's yeah.
2: Scorpio's um, rule, just so everyone knows.
1: He's kind of the coolest. Yeah. Not that I'm into all of that, but if you're if you were gonna pick, it would have to be Scorpio. It
2: would be Scorpio. You wouldn't choose anything else, would you?
1: I think we have got, I mean, the I guess the similarity is that dogged determination. Um, and because I, I share that, I share that exact same mentality. For me, I cannot relax until I feel I've earned, mm-hmm. you know, really achieved it. And I love the kind of pain of getting somewhere. It's just a weird cycle, yeah, you're nodding because you know if you get it, you get
2: it. Right? I'm nodding because I know when you are going through the process, it's agony. But the moment you get to the end of it, you feel so elated, you feel good, that all that pain just it, it seeps away and you feel nothing but pride in what you've done. And I think the more young people we get involved in, getting outdoors, getting active, getting fit, staying fit, the more people will start to value the outdoors. And also that has a knock on effect. It means if you value the outdoors, you're going to look after it in the generations to come.
1: Completely. And also, Dwayne, let's state the obvious here. We need more black and Asian people to get out into the countryside, don't we?
2: Yeah, we absolutely do. I mean, look, people in ethnic minority groups, they tend to look at it and say, oh, look, the majority of people out there are white. And that's a fact. It's true. It's a fact. And because of that, they feel like, oh, maybe it's not a place for us, but the truth is it's a countryside, it's for everybody. We can all benefit from being out there and we should all benefit out from out being out there. It's fun, it's a great place to be. It's just it's great. Just get out there.
1: But what I find interesting about that is that most of kind of migrants to this land are from farming communities. They're from rural places. So actually, the countryside is very close to them. It's just feeling that it's accessible to them. And I think by having role models like you and maybe even seeing me on Country Farm on a Sunday night will make people believe that they can, well, it's for them and get them up and out. I think it's changing. It's changing.
2: It is changing. And I fully agree with everything that you said. I think the more that we see people like yourselves, uh, people like me to a degree as well, the more that other people that look like us and come from backgrounds similar to ours will feel like, oh, actually, well, I can go out there and do that as well. And they'll get stuck in, they'll get involved. And they can be part of the bigger picture, the part of the, you know, the the, the the force that we've got to secure and protect these environments.
1: Yes. Love it. I love it. I could talk to you for ages. Will you come back and do another podcast with me?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I really love your tea, so I'm definitely, definitely going to come yeah, back.
1: I know. And it's freezing cold as well. He says he's loved it. He's had half a cup. Um, Dwayne Fields, you're my hero. More power to you. Keep going. Good luck with the new project. I hope you raise your money. I hope some people listening to this podcast will donate. And um yes, You're an inspiration. Oh, you're the first man I'm going to crown a Rani's Rani. So Rani means queen. So anyone who does my podcast is a Rani's Rani, and I'm I'm putting the crown on you now.
2: Yeah. So I'm getting a crown right now. I'm getting a crown from Rani. So I am now a Rani's queen. So I'm a male queen, and I have no problem with that. In fact, I'm happy and humbled by that.
1: You're awesome, Dwayne. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed that podcast, please leave a review on iTunes and tell all your friends we want to get as many people on board as we can. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram, it's Anita Rani, or go to my website, it'sanitarani.com. Next week, I'm going to be talking to Prima Ballerina at Northern Ballet, Drida Blow.